Sabbath. Um, the, the particular Sabbath is it's June 3, and so tomorrow is a special day. Is it July 3? Sorry, not June. July 3. So tomorrow is this special day, Independence Day, and it happens to be 245 years since the founders of the United States sat down and wrote that, uh, that special document, the, um, uh, the document that said, we will be an independent nation. And it's a document that, that made... Well, it set this nation on the course of becoming a nation that would foster freedom of religion and give us the ability to take the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Keep in mind that this is the Sabbath day, the Sabbath of the Creator, and we have the opportunity and the responsibility um, because of this great um, nation that we get to live in to take the gospel of the Creator to our world. Next week, we're going to start a a new series, and it's going to be an intermittent series, but we're going to start with two. We'll see how many come after that, but it's it's called Sanctuary Light, and it's based off of a book my friend Nicole Parker wrote from the same title, Sanctuary Light, and she says it's it's a book for children of all ages, and it happens to be a story about the sanctuary. Now, we look at the sanctuary and we talk about this service means that and this thing means that, you know, that's the, the, the candelabra, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And we do this like this equals that type of stuff. But what would it have been like to live in the time of a sanctuary? What would that spiritual experience have been like? And what can we learn about the gospel that Jesus gave to the disciples and the gospel we're supposed to take to the world? What can we learn about that from sanctuary? So we're going to start that series next week, but this week we're still in 1 John. We're ending the series that we started, uh, well, a few months ago, Uh, but if you've been tracking along with it, we've gone chapter by chapter through 1 John, and, and today we're in 1 John chapter 5. And when we look at, at 1 John chapter 5, um, we, we see this ending statement that's, uh, well, it's kind of strange because it ends with something that John hasn't talked about anywhere else in the book. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, John hasn't been talking about idolatry at all. Now, if you were in John's hometown of Ephesus, you would have seen lots and lots and lots of idolatry. In fact, this is the temple of, um, uh, one of the temples of the, the, the main god of Ephesus, and there's lots of other idols, you know, busts of this and, and, and statues of that. People would um, put incense out for different things, lots of different gods. The whole pantheon of Greek and Roman gods was represented in Ephesus. And so John could have, and maybe even should have, talked a bit about idolatry, and, and focus some attention on that. But in this whole letter to the churches, he doesn't say anything until the very last line. And I, I would like to suggest that John isn't saying that we shouldn't bow down to um, Zeus. Not that he is saying we should. That's included. But he wants to go deeper. He wants to go to a heart issue. Not, not just this this outward idolatry, but something that's more insidious and something that's more relevant for you and I today than the idol of Zeus. And we don't have Zeus um, as an idol here in Bonners Ferry, do we? I don't think we do. Um, Nothing to bow down to, no, no statues. So if it was just about bowing down to idols, we might could just say, well, that was for Ephesus or for the church in John's day. But, but no, John's wanting to go to our heart. And so we want to explore that and and get a sense for what's going on. 
To do that, we need to get the whole context of the book. We need to kind of draw back as we end this, this series and kind of see where John's going for this entire book. If you've been here and, and seen a few of these, these uh, messages, then you've probably caught on that John is all about contrasts. In John chapter 1, we talked about light and darkness. God is light. There's no darkness in him. We're, we live in darkness. And, and so there's this problem that he introduces. And then he talks about God being love. And John, he's the, the, the one that makes this statement famous. God is love. And then he contrasts that with our problem with hate and selfishness. So God is love and we're not. He does say that we can love. Our love comes as a response to his loving us. He contrasts knowing Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the everlasting God. He contrasts that with knowing false prophets and false Christs and false teachings. And now in John chapter 5, he he has this uh, elaboration on a concept that he's been building, and he makes it really clear that we're talking about being born of God or of the world. Same idea, born of God or children of the world, children of God, my little children, John says, or children of the world. Now, at first glance, you might think that all of these contrasts have nothing to do with idolatry, Um, but I think that there is something that John wants, he wants us to understand about our hearts. If you look in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments." Now, this isn't a new idea, this love God or being born of God, rather. It's not a new idea. He's talked about it since the very beginning. He says, I'm writing this whole letter to you so that you can have fellowship with God. That's, that's his point from, from the, the very get-go of 1 John. I want you to have fellowship with God. And he talks about abiding with Jesus, and he talks about the Spirit abiding in us. There's this fellowship, this, this relationship that we have with him. And he just clarifies that it's a, a parent-child relationship born of God. And there's something about this born of God thing. He says that there's stuff that happens when we're born of God. Uh, First of all, when we're born of God, we know him. Like we have to understand him and at least recognize him as God in order to be born again. And, And then not only do we know him, but we confess. Remember that 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, he will forgive and cleanse. So those are some of the things that happen, but because of the cleansing, we have fellowship with him. And that means his spirit abides in us. And because his spirit abides in us, the love that God has becomes written in our hearts. And of course, he talks about that as the law of love, the Ten Commandments. When we know God, when we're born of God, we keep his commandments. We love like he does. So that's kind of the, the whole of First John. He, he talks about this experience with God. Everybody that is born of God, he says, overcomes the world. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, he says in verse three. This obedience thing is like a, it's a natural response. Not, Not the begrudging obedience, oh, fine, if I have to. Not that you've ever done that in your entire life, right? And, and not that you've ever heard that from your children. 
<laughs> this isn't the kind of obedience that God's talking about. He's talking about a kind of obedience that comes from the heart because God has planted it in our, us. He's transformed us by His Spirit. And then he makes this statement in, in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is where we get the title of the message, overcome. Do you feel like you've overcome the world? I'm just, just curious. Do you feel like I've conquered this? I've got victory. No, no takers. John makes the promise, if you've been born of God, then you overcome the world. It is a foregone conclusion. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If you believe in Jesus, you are an overcomer, period. Now, you might not feel like an overcomer, but let's just explore this a little bit. 1 John 2 describes the contrast, because there's born of God and then there's uh, of the world. Um, the, the, the contrast to being born of God is in 1 John 2.16, where he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, it is from the world. Now, when I hear people talking about worldliness, what we usually talk about is this outward stuff, the stuff that we can see. It's like, you know, uh, you listen to that worldly music, right? Or, or you might focus on the stuff that you might eat that's, you know, maybe not the best for you. That's something that somebody that's worldly might do. Um, or it's the movies that we watch, or it's the um, political party that um, is opposite of what we feel aligned with. <laughs> that's the worldly stuff. It's the... Um, well, anything that doesn't align with what my perception of Christian values are, that's worldly. But I think that there's something deeper here. We want to focus on the outward appearance, but what does God look at? And, and when John says, this is the stuff that's of the world, he's not talking about um, movies or music or food or clothes or, or political parties or anything like that. He's talking about heart stuff. And, and think about it like this. When, when Satan was in heaven, his big problem was selfish desire and pride. I want to be like God. I want to be in God's place. I want God to not be on that throne anymore. Or at least, fine if he's on that throne, but I want my own. I want to, I want to rule like God does. That was Satan's problem. And Satan did not live in a quote-unquote worldly environment. There was nothing on the outward appearance that would make him look worldly. He is the leader of heaven's choir. He's, he's standing by the throne of God, and yet in a perfect environment, he establishes the principles of the world, the principles of selfish desire and pride, greed and ambition, and all these things that lead us towards self-idolatry. And I think this is where, where John is trying to go. In that very last sentence in John, 1 John 5, 21, he says, little children, don't, don't worship idols. And the, the focus is on our heart. What's going on inside us? Keep yourself from idols is about keeping yourself from the worldly principles that Satan introduced all the way back then in heaven. Okay, so we've got this don't follow idols, keep yourself from idols, and the idol that you really have to focus on is the idol of your heart. And you've got the contrast between worldly principles, the selfish ambition and desires and pride, and, and then 
being born of God. And, and there's a very big difference, simple difference, but it's big. To be born of God, you have to confess and let Jesus forgive you and cleanse you and abide with Christ. And Jesus says it um, a little differently. Um, he says, take up my cross or take up your cross and follow me. There's something about this experience with God that, that requires us to die and then live again. But, but if we're of the world, it's the opposite of dying. We don't give ourselves to God. We take and we grasp for ourselves and we try to get what we want. It's a selfish ambition. Complete opposites. Very simple difference, though. Am I God's or am I living for myself? But then there's a, there's a big focus that John has on confidence. From the very beginning, he says, I want you to have fellowship with God. And then he says, if you sin um, and, and you keep on sinning, you can't have fellowship with God. You have to confess that sin and let him transform you, right? You can't cling to sin and cling to God at the same time. There, there's an um, a evidence that you are God's. He says that if you are God's, if you're born of God, then you're going to love your brothers. And if you don't, then you know that you're not from God. And, and we talked about that, needing to, to give maybe more of our lives to God, completely surrendering to Him. But now he, he gives us some evidence, some evidence that Jesus is God and that we are His. And it's in, in verse 6 through 8. He says, this is he, or, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, if you're reading the New King James Version or the King James Version, you might have an extra little section in your text that says, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and there are three that testify in earth, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Now, we won't get into a whole um, question about why the English Standard Version doesn't have it in there, um, in, in, in any detail anyway, but let's just say this. John's focus here isn't to prove the Trinity. Um, he's not trying to prove that there is a trinity in heaven. That's a foregone conclusion. It's all throughout his book. It's all throughout the Bible. It's not the issue that he's talking about. What he's talking about is the evidence of your and my salvation. Because this is the thing he's wanting us to have confidence in, that you and I are, we're God's children, that we can trust that God has saved us. And what is the evidence that he presents? The primary evidence is the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now think about Jesus' experience. At the very beginning of his ministry, he comes to John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and what does he do? He gets baptized. And Jesus in, um, I don't think I have it on my slideshow, I don't. Jesus says um, in John chapter 3 that uh, if we want to be born again, we have to be born by the water. There's something about this baptism experience that's connected to the, the testimony of our salvation. And then um, it, it says that he's, uh, the blood is also a testament, testimony. What happens at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth? What does he do? He gives his life. He dies on the cross. His blood is shed. And so the testimony of the water and the testimony of the blood illustrate Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. But then it also says the Spirit testifies of these things. And, and if you were there at the, the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized, you would have he heard the, the Father saying, 
this is my beloved son, hear him. And you would have seen the Holy Spirit descend on him. And if you were there just after Jesus' death and resurrection, not very long afterwards, you would have seen the Holy Spirit poured out. And it would have been like a whole room of 120 people or so with, with fire uh, above their heads and a rushing wind going through there. And the, and the result of that was a, a missionary movement that, that brought thousands to the Lord in, in just a few days. You would have seen the testimony of the Spirit at either side of Jesus' ministry. And, and so John is pointing back to Jesus and saying, look, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is your Savior. You can trust Him. But then he adds this, uh, this additional idea, which is kind of interesting. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. That's the Spirit, the one that testified of Jesus. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, in herself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Well, what does that mean that you have the testimony in yourself? Do you feel like you have the testimony in yourself? (laughs) It's a really simple idea. John, in his day, there is no disconnect between being born of God and being born of water, of baptism, right? It's, it's tied in. It's one and the same. Um, of course, here is where I, I put the text. <laughs> Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So um, John is, he's seeing baptism as tightly connected to salvation. And so he tells the children or the, 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 the church members um, of his day, he says, you're born of God and you have the testimony Why? Because he knows they've been baptized. You have the testimony of water in your life. Well, what about the blood? Do you have the testimony of the blood in your life? The answer would be yes. And 1 John 1, 9 reminds us how. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. But how can he forgive you? It's because of his blood. When he died on the cross, his blood is applied in exchange for yours. And so when you confess your sin, he says in heaven, Father, my blood on their behalf. And so every time you sin and every time you're forgiven, you are testifying to the blood as well. What about the Spirit? Do you have the testimony of the Spirit in you? The answer would be yes. Because in Acts chapter 2, there's a, a promise Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I forgot to mention this in Matthew 16. Um, Remember this idea of, of sacrifice. It's not just that Christ has died for us, but Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is a sacrifice, a resisting unto blood, as one uh, apostle put it. There is a sacrifice that's required in our following Jesus. We have to die. We have to take up our cross and let him live in us. So there is a testimony of the blood in confession and a testimony of the blood in surrender. But, but uh, here's what I was going to point to in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter says about the, the Spirit, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and then he says something. It's a, it's a statement of fact, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I have a question for you. 
Have you given your heart to Jesus? And have you been baptized? If so, God's promise is that you have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a gift. Now, don't get me wrong. The Spirit is the acting agent that brought us to desire Christ in the beginning. He's, He's never far from us. The Spirit is the one that draws us to Him and gives us a desire to surrender our hearts to Him. He's the one that gives us faith. He's the one that gives us repentance. All of these things are gifts of the Spirit. So um, I'm not saying that if you haven't been baptized, the Holy Spirit isn't anywhere nearby you. I'm just saying that when we are baptized, we give ourselves to God. We say, my life is yours. And, and God is able to give us the Spirit in a new way. And, and that is a transformative experience. It's a growing experience. It's not an instantaneous change where you were evil and then suddenly you're perfect. Um, it's, a, it's a growing experience. We're children of God, right? And children grow up. And so the Holy Spirit works on our hearts and he, he tackles a problem of, of uh, selfishness here and pride over there and he transforms our hearts so we become loving. Have you experienced joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness growing in your life? If you have, then that's the evidence of the Spirit and you have the testimony of the Spirit in you. And I I would like to suggest, if you've asked God for some help recently and you found that help readily available, whether it's finding your phone or or something deeper than that, then you have the testimony of the Spirit in your life. God is actively at work in you. And in verses 11 and 12, he says, and this is the testimony that that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It's not in me. The eternal life that I have is in Jesus. And whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I mean, this is the absolutely clearest contrast you can make. You either are born of God and you have life, or you are of the world and all you have is doom. Those are your two choices. Now we have a, a, a social challenge here because we have people that are growing up in Jesus and not every one of us has, uh, has the same struggles or the same victories. Now the Bible says you've overcome the world. If you're in Christ, then you have overcome the world. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that, that there's not a, a struggle. Remember, he, he defined sin in an interesting way. Early on, he says that, um, that if, you are, if you know God, then you don't sin anymore. Actually, the way he said it is you don't keep on sinning. You don't hold on to it and cling on to sin. Instead, you, when you sin, you take it to God. Because if we sin, we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we confess and he forgives and cleanses. So this is the, the, the tension that he has with sin. You've overcome, but there's a process of growing up in Christ as well. And now he, he introduces a problem. Have you, uh, have you ever been connected or part of a church with a, a strong gossip culture? You know, you, you say something to, to somebody, and uh, in just a couple days, everybody knows about it. And it's not the good things. It's not like your beautiful roses suddenly everybody knows about. It, it's the salacious things. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the juicy stuff. In Paul's, or John's day, it was probably, oh, well, you know, um, Quentin, he sacrificed, uh, he did, did a little uh, burning of incense to the emperor. Uh, didn't you hear about it? I saw him in the temple. 
Sorry, Quentin, I, I shouldn't have put you on the spot. But there's no temple around here, so I figured it'd be okay. <laughs> or, or, or somebody's saying, oh, the pastor's wife, she was in the, in the market and she bought meat at that, that, uh, that, that marketplace, and you know that meat was offered to an idol. <laughs> that was the kind of stuff that was being gossiped about in John's day. And today we have other stuff. I don't need to mention it. You know what I'm talking about. But John says, when you have problems in the church, people that are struggling with stuff, we, we need to have a different response, not a gossip response, but a prayer response. Here's what he says, verses 16 to 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin or sister, uh, committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that, sh- that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that that one you should pray for. All, um, I do not say that one should pray for that. Um, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I don't know if you're confused by that statement. Are you confused by what he's saying? Sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death. What? Do pray for this, don't pray. Okay, so here's what I, here's what I gather from this. John is, is dealing with the struggle that we have as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and people that are at, at different places in growth in, in their walk with Jesus. And he invites us to pray, to respond to the issues in our church, to the problems that we all have, to the struggles of temptation that we have in prayer. Not in gossip, not, not sharing this around, but going to God. And the promise is really cool. He says, if anyone sees a brother committing sin, he shall ask and God will give him life. What kind of life? The only life that John has been talking about is eternal life. So he shall ask and God will give him eternal life. But oh, the struggle. We want to make this into categories of sin. In fact, there's whole Christian communities that have um, theology based on this and practice based on this. And they call them things like venial sins. And a a venial sin, these are fun. Venial sins are things like, um, you know, flipping off the guy who cuts you off in in traffic. It's just a venial sin. You shouldn't have done it, you know, a few Hail Marys and you'll be good. Um, but then there's, there's, uh, there's mortal sins. And mortal sins are things like gluttony. Sorry, I hope, hope you didn't know that was, or hope you weren't thinking that was a, a venial sin. Um, <laughs> gluttony or, or maybe murder, like these are in the same category. Mortal sins, these are like hellfire damnation kind of sins. And you need some extra help for those. But that's not where John is going here. John is not wanting us to classify sins and saying, well, this one's not so bad of a sin and this one's a really bad sin because notice he says, all wrongdoing is sin. And I hate to break it to you, but sin, all sin leads to death. There's no, there's no, uh, no sin that leads to life. It just doesn't work that way. So what does he mean? Sin that leads to death, sin that does not lead to death. If you look in 1 John chapter 1, you have two different kinds of people. The first kind of person says, I don't sin. And you know what John says? You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. And you do not know God. And guess what happens when you don't know God? You do not have life. And so what, what do you need to do? We talked about it in the first chapter. You need to bear your soul to God. You need to say, God, I'm a sinner. And here's my problem. You need to confess. And when you bring that to God, that secret thing in your life, when you bring it to God, he forgives and he cleanses. And, uh, and guess what? That sin no longer leads to death. It is the only time that sin doesn't lead to death is when God forgives. 
So here's the thing. You've got two different kinds of people. You've got the people that are born of God, and you've got people that are of the world, people that have surrendered to God and have the testimony of the Spirit in their lives, and people that have rejected God and said, I'm going to do it my way. Thank you very much. And, and John says to those brothers and sisters who are, are searching for Jesus with you, who are on that path with you to, to heaven, um, you see them struggling with a sin, pray for them and God will give them life. That's cool. And that is a good promise. That is a call for you and me to, to pay attention to and care for each other and pray for each other. But, but the alternative, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for somebody who has uh, rejected God in some way. It simply means that we need to pray for them in a different way. Instead of praying for them to to have victory over some struggle that they're dealing with, we're praying that God gets a hold of their hearts and that they start to fall in love with Jesus. We're at a different place in that process. And he's talking about the Christian church. He says, pray for each other that God would, would give you life. And then in 1 John 5, 16 to 18, he says, oh, uh, this is uh, towards the end. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Here's the promise there. When God gives him life and when we pray, they are protected from the evil one. He doesn't touch them. This is the promise that God gives. And then in verse 19, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. These are the contrasts. We are from God, the world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us the understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. These are the things we know. These are the things we can have confidence in. And because of Jesus, because he is the true God and eternal life, our eternal life, we can have confidence that we, that we have eternal life. We can have confidence to come before God. We can have confidence to bring our struggles before God and confess our sins. We can have confidence to pray for our brother and our sister who's struggling with something. We can come to God. And and here's what he says in verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will. And and some of the things he's encouraged us to ask for is, uh, well, forgiveness. He's encouraged us to ask for uh, strength for our brothers and sisters, for protection from the evil one. Um, and, And there's all kinds of other things we can pray for. We can certainly pray that God's will will be done in our lives and in others. And when we ask anything in his name, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is a faith that he's encouraging us to step out in. Not an idolatry to say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to make my own path. But in surrender to say, God, your will be done in my life. And then to pray confidently and in faith, step out saying, God has answered my prayer. God has given me those things that I need. Do you, do you need something from God? Is there an issue that you struggle with, a, um, a sin that you have left unconfessed, 
a family member that you want um, to, to be protected from the evil one? Is there something you need from God? He says that he will answer that request. He will give you the desires of your heart. Remember, Jesus is your advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if he is your advocate, when you pray, the Bible says that he takes your prayers and he ever liveth to intercede on our behalf. Jesus takes your request before the throne of God in heaven and he says, my blood, Father, my blood on their behalf. Go to God, pray, and ask.